Welcome to episode 154 of the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. I am Laurel Bannock, and I've just finished an awesome conversation with Professor Sean Arendt. Those of you that follow my podcast will know I've done a number of podcasts with Sean, and he's also a good buddy. So it was a really, really fun, enjoyable discussion that we had today. And our focus was about nutrient timing. Now, you'll know that this is not a new topic to my podcast. One way or the other, I find this topic extremely interesting because it is such a nuanced area. It is such a complex topic that has been pretty badly interpreted, I feel, over the years. And that's something that we really get into in today's chat, where we will talk about the history of nutrient timing what we mean by nutrient timing and other similar strategies like nutrition periodization and simply just feeding, which is an element of timing in itself. We talk about the history, the science that evolved over time, where it started and uh, where we're at with it now and how we should be interpreting this information as it relates to how we time our feeding strategies and our, our supplements around training, for example, or performance or, or specific events and the relevance of that and what we should and should not take from the science. I'll let you learn all about that conversation in today's podcast, but just quickly, please do go check out our website at www.theiopn.com where you can learn all about our various activities such as our online diploma, 100% online diploma in performance nutrition, which is a practice-focused program. It is advanced level, but it is actually intended to complement either your existing training in sport and exercise nutrition, dietetics, sports science, strength conditioning at the master's degree level even, but is also there for those that come from the professional certification backgrounds such as strength conditioning coaches, nutrition coaches, and so on. And our program helps bridge the gap in terms of, of knowledge and level up to the advanced level. And as I said, it's practice focus. So it's all about learning how to be an effective practitioner in the real world, which also relates to something else that we released recently, which is our SendPro platform, which is a suite toolbox, if you like, of tools to enable you to run and operate your sport and exercise nutrition practice or your nutrition coaching practice, as well as specific nutrition coaching tools, habit and behavior modification tools, meal planning tools, and so on. Anyway, go check it out. There's a free trial that you can have. So you don't have to pay for anything initially. You can just go and try it out for yourself and see how good it is. Our podcast, of course, you can also access via our website and learn about us generally and my amazing team at the IOPN. You can learn about us there. It's not just me, of course, there's a whole group of us. So we are greater than the sum of our parts in that respect. So anyway, I hope you enjoy this conversation that I had with Sean Aaron, all about nutrient timing as much as I did. And do please come back to the podcast website because that's where you'll find the transcript to this conversation, as well as the links to the papers and other resources and other relevant podcasts that I refer to. So here we now go to the conversation. Enjoy. Hi, and welcome back to the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. And I am very happy to welcome back. I can't remember how many times I've had you on, Sean, but welcome back, Sean Aaron. Good to see you again, mate. 
Thank you. It's always a pleasure to get to talk to you and be on this. So thanks for the invitation again. I really, really appreciate it. So obviously it's crazy times, but we're going to bring a sense of reassuring normality to this conversation and <laughs> talking about... <laughs> well, we're, we're going to try. We're going to try. Big reach, we'll try it. We'll try it. And people can just turn this off anyway. They don't have to. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> it. <you know? laughs> so we'll this, have fun for the next hour. It's all good. You can talk for ages on various sport and exercise nutrition and exercise science topics. In fact, you've been an expert guest on this podcast a number of times. We've had a really great chat about test don't guess. And also mm-hmm. we've delved into nutrient timing a few years ago. But I wanted to to focus this conversation today all about nutrient timing for a number of reasons that I'll discuss in a minute. Before we get into that chat, that conversation, just in case the listeners haven't caught up yet with our previous podcasts or terrible reason they don't know who you are. Um, Entirely possible. (laughs) (laughs) Give us the quick overview of who is Sean Aaron, Sean. So I realized it has been at least a year and a half since I've been on because I was not at the University of South Carolina yet when we last talked. So I am currently a professor in the department chair of exercise science at the University of South Carolina. Really a pleasure to be here. I was at Rutgers University in New Jersey for 17 years prior to that where I was the director of the Center for Health and Human Performance. I've worked with Major League Baseball, the National Hockey League, a lot of college sports as well, some individual players in the NBA and NFL. But, you know, we work closely with a lot of our college teams. When I was at Rutgers, we worked incredibly closely with women's soccer in particular, or proper football for most of you that are probably listening (laughs) to this. So I'll go back and forth between soccer and football. My apologies. I played, so We'll put subtitles. Actually, this is- Yeah, that's probably it, yeah. We have subtitles. (laughs) So, but we were fortunate, even since we got to the University of South Carolina, we have really created a tremendous relationship with athletics already. There's about eight teams that, that my lab is working with. We started the U of SC Sports Science Lab here. So we're up and running. And for those that don't know, the University of South Carolina has the top ranked PhD program in the United States. And we are the number 13 in the world sports science university and number one in the United States. So it really is an honor to be here. It's a tremendously supportive environment. You know, we've been able to get some really good research done. We've been moving more and more into military research and tactical stuff. So really taking the lessons we've learned in sports science and applying it sort of at a different level with still the the ultimate outcome being performance, right? And that's that's a, a big part. And I know that's something that we'll talk quite a bit about today with nutrient timing and where it fits into all this. You make a couple of points there that I, I do comment on over the course of the various years that I've been doing this podcast. And one of which is we've got this term sports nutrition, but I prefer performance nutrition because oh, sports nutrition is such a limiting term. And whether... Well, thinking outside of that traditional box, whether you think of the performing dancer, the performing singer, the tactical athlete, these aren't people that are competing in a game as such, but performance is absolutely critical to them. And like you mentioned, the tactical side of things, something I've I've got quite a lot of Mm -hmm. interest in is nutrition, not just for general military, but for special forces, for example. There are there are some phenomenal areas of research coming out from your side of the pond, actually, which I know you've played a role in some of that. It is absolutely mind-blowing. But also, I feel, although performance nutrition, sport and exercise nutrition has evolved, has come a long way in the last two decades, it's still stuck 
sort of in the equivalent of the 80s with the bad haircuts and the dodgy <laughs> music. And, you know, that that metaphor, I do still think, applies to sport and exercise and nutrition. And, and one of those sort of areas that seems to be stuck in the past is this concept of nutrient timing, which, yeah. you know, of course, we can take back to a number of papers that had come out on this topic, which became so popular that even the likes of myself back in the day but I, I did not have a, a mullet or a dodgy haircut or whatever back in those days. But I would have these situations yeah. where I'd be working out and I'd realize I'd forgotten my protein shake. And I would be having an anxiety attack in the squat <laughs> rack knowing <laughs> I'm not going to have, you know, I'm not going to hit my leucine threshold or spike my insulin or, or whatever. I mean, you know, I think this is such a fascinating topic for two reasons. Number one, the fact that those myths still persist, particularly on the gym floor. But of course, we're interested in performance nutrition. So of course, that's a different lens, potentially, which I know you're going to expand upon. But also just this sort of general idea that this actually is another really useful tool in the toolbox that we as sport and exercise nutritionists or researchers can really impact the training and performance outcomes of really, really, really elite athletes or any kind of athlete, obviously. But that's exciting to me. So anyway, look, you've done quite a lot of work in this nutrient timing area. Why have you gotten so interested in this, Sean? So it's funny. You mentioned that you know, we're kind of like stuck in the eighties with some of this, right? Now I will say my wife loves eighties hair metal. So she would argue with you that the music was dodgy. <laughs> so, you know, there's some good stuff that came out of there. I agree with you about the haircuts. And I look back at myself and I'm like, holy crap. But the thing is, were we really wrong? In other words, is this stuck in the eighties or did we take too narrow of a lens with it? Right. So in other words, and this is where we've moved and we'll talk more about this, that, that idea of the anabolic window versus a sort of a, a, a garage door of opportunity. Right. And I think that what's happened is recently, I think what really sparked my interest in this to a great degree was certainly the science side of it, but it was also then trying to apply that science in an athletic performance model and realizing that so much of what we were talking about was purely about building muscle and getting strong. You know, and, and there's a whole different world if anybody's ever actually worked with professional or, or high level athletes. That is a very minor part of what matters to them right? In terms of the outcomes and recovery becomes a real issue. And I started to realize having been an athlete moving through this, that it's that ability to train again, that really starts to distinguish and and, and make these things important. And so I think there were some attempts to almost turn nutrient timing on its ear and basically say, look, it doesn't matter, right? So there's almost this overwhelming push to try to dispel a myth But in fact, all it did is created a bit more confusion because it honed in on one nutrient in this case, right? And so I think what really sparked my interest is our propensity to confuse nutrient timing with just protein timing. And they're not the same thing. Yes, protein is a nutrient, but the area of nutrient timing is so much bigger and, and far less narrow. And when we start to look at opportunities throughout a day to improve performance, I looked at it a lot like I look at training load, right? Where training load is a very useful metric for us. It's, it's a useful measure. But if you really think about it, I may be getting two hours out of 24 that tells me what the athlete is doing. What about the other 22 hours? Well, nutrient timing fits in that same realm for me, where it's not just about the, the, the pre and the post training, but it's all the pieces of the puzzle that fit together and also understanding what you are trying to drive. Are you trying to drive 
optimal performance in that period? Or are you trying to drive adaptation that leads to optimal performance? Because that is part of what's going to dictate what you do and don't eat in a certain scenario and when because of what you're trying to force the system to do. And I would say that's really what got me going in this was sort of this very narrow and and closed off view. And then I started to see that while the information was very useful, how people were using it started to not be ideal from a real world setting. And I think that, that that still drives the approach that we take with this. That's one of the really fascinating areas about sport and exercise nutrition. When you look at what people have taken from what has been learned in the lab and they've thrown at that, hopefully they've thrown at that, the very best of scientific reductionism and, you know, that whole approach is to make that as great scientific research as possible, right? It's still a reductionist approach. And yet when we apply that in the real world, which is the absolute opposite of a well-controlled, tightly controlled environment. I mean, what's going on right now in the world is the classic example. Yes. You know, things can go a bit crazy in the real world. And there are also very quantitative views of these things when as human beings, there's also a very qualitative view of the world to even just basic things like, you know, taste What's practical? Like in my case, did I forget something? Is that really the end of of the story? Can you even afford it? You know? So I want to get into all of that because I think that there's so much in this topic that there's so much to be learned for practitioners, for researchers, but also consumers, those that, I mean, most of the audience here are going to be practitioners and researchers, but we still got lots of sort of highly educated consumers as well listening to this. But I think What would be useful, Sean, is if you can just spend a few minutes on the very roots of this nutrient timing sort of concept and some of the maybe the the studies, but also where there is a bit of confusion with terminology where people, like you pointed out, people hear the word nutrient timing and they think they know what that means. And actually, there are some confusing terms that actually aren't quite the same thing. The timing of a nutrient is not necessarily nutrient timing necessarily. So if we really look back, you're right. You know, it's funny, especially with this topic going back to the eighties, right. And we look at some of the work that John Ivy and Portman actually did in the first place. And that really was the impetus for this whole idea of nutrient timing and this notion of an anabolic window. Right. And so what this sparked was a real focus on sort of the post-exercise period, right? So you finish your workout, especially resistance training. And in that period of time, the human body is primed to assimilate nutrients, repair, regrow, and do these things. Because what we're doing during the exercise bout is, is creating disruption, creating damage. And then we repair, we get stronger, we get faster, we get bigger, right? So they took this idea and really that anabolic window really focused in on about the first 45 minutes post-exercise, because this is a period of time where we saw high activation of GLUT4, right? So with GLUT4 being able to pull in blood glucose, restore muscle glycogen, sort of replenish that aspect of it. At the same time, we would see the amino acids being able to be integrated and, and pulled in. And so it was this notion of you have this anabolic environment that your body's primed and after 45 minutes, that anabolic environment starts to decline. And so you may have missed a, a real opportunity to make progress, right? So that's where it started. I think then we started to realize as time went on that nutrient timing went beyond just that aspect. And we started to have to understand that it expanded to before and during training as well and before and during competition. 
And by the way, when I'm talking about this, in many cases, I will use sort of training and competition interchangeably just for the sake of ease, because we really are kind of talking about that entire aspect of it, right? The participation factor in in terms of what we're doing. And so we started to realize, hey, what you eat before matters too, right? We've known this in cycling and running for decades and decades in terms of carbohydrate and and some timing aspects in terms of, you know, how closely to the workout do you eat carbohydrate? Do we potentially have to deal with rebound hypoglycemia, which it turns out that a proper warmup mostly negates anyway. So it's not a really big issue and it doesn't even affect everybody. And then, oh, hey, look, if you actually feed during, especially if you're on a five-hour bike ride, like that during becomes important. Oh, my God, what about a soccer match where we can't feed the whole time? So now how do we take advantage of halftime, you know, and stuff like that? So we started to see this. And then now that's even morphed into pre-sleep feeding, right? So now we're even seeing the recovery aspects of, hey, what about before you go to bed? And now we try to prolong this effect. So I think what we saw was an extension of this whole idea of, of timing, to be about an entire day, not about a workout or, or a single training session or anything. And I think where it really started to resonate with me as well is, you know, especially if you take a team in preseason where they might be training two and sometimes three times a day, or you take like an MMA athlete, right? Where they train in multiple different disciplines in a day, they might have three or four different training sessions. The ability to replenish and refuel between those to make the next one good too started to really become a consideration. And so I think what happened is we started to see that certainly there is this this anabolic window and it's probably not the right term, right? Because I think what we realized is that that window is actually much bigger than we thought it was. This lasts for hours and hours. And so in some ways, rather than being an anabolic window, it's more like a garage door, right? It's much, much bigger. I think where we've gone a little bit astray with that and is people took that notion and said, oh, it's more like a garage door. You have all this time. You don't have to eat right after you work out. You have all this time. Whereas I looked at it, I said, well, hold on a minute, though. If this anabolic environment actually lasts longer than we thought, isn't that a motivation to fit more feedings in that period of time, not fewer? Right. Why wouldn't we take advantage of that? If it starts to degrade at some point, especially if I have to train again the next day and where we start to see this and, and, you know, and I think Schoenfeld and them did an an interesting meta looking at the protein timing effects. And, but I think people have to understand it was a 2013 meta. And I think that one of the, the things that got lost in it, in reading it is that there were something like 23 studies in it, but only four of them actually used trained individuals. Mm. Right. And then, and, and only a, a couple actually equated total intakes throughout the day between the control group and the comparison group. Only two or three of them were actually technically timing studies. Others were just, they fed or they didn't after a workout. It wasn't really a timing manipulation. And so they basically concluded that the timing didn't really matter. The bigger issue was protein intake in a day. And I'm like, yeah, I totally agree. That is the bigger issue, right? You can time the crap out of your protein intake, but if you only take in that time, and you, and you ignore the rest of the day, then yeah, no, that's absolutely like it's baking a cake, right? You got to have the whole cake first and then timing becomes the icing, the candles, the fry, you know, like all that other stuff. So, so I started to look at that and you realize that the other mistake that had occurred there, not by them per se, but by the interpretation of it was the notion that, that protein equals nutrient, right? And it does, but that's not all of it right? So there's still the carbohydrate, there's still fat timing, you know, and where it struck me is there's even research that shows that the order you eat foods in within a meal 
determines how they respond and how they're metabolized, right? So you talk about truly nutrient timing at that point in terms of what that would mean for that, you know? So I think that those are real considerations. And so, you know, when we look at it from that standpoint, I think where I really got concerned was coming off that meta-analysis. I started seeing strength coaches go, I knew it. I knew it didn't mean you didn't have to drink a protein shake right after your workout. I'm telling my athletes to wait now. It doesn't matter. And I'm like, no, no, for your athletes, it can still matter. But if you take an untrained individual, the training stimulus is going to be the big driver, right? That's the bus. Like that's what's really taking us forward. Then your total nutrient intake, especially your protein quantity and stuff over the course of the day, then maybe timing starts to matter. But I would argue as we start to see these more high level athletes, you know, and especially where it struck me was, you know, a lot of people don't realize from a glycogen depletion standpoint, soccer football is remarkably demanding. I think some of the classic work by Bank Saltine is so awesome. I mean, they showed over a 90 to 95% depletion in muscle glycogen in a 90 minute match. And you're going, okay, you know, and in college soccer here in the US, especially on the women's side, they'll play a Friday, Sunday schedule sometimes. So you're talking about this massive depletion on Friday. You somehow have to get ready by Sunday and people are going, oh, well, you know, within 24 hours, glycogen replenishes anyway, you know, if you just eat enough and ever. And it's funny because there's recent research in soccer in particular, where it looks like it may take upwards of three days, right? So that tells me if you're going to play a Friday, Sunday, you better get on the ball on Friday after your match. If you have any hope of even being back to about 90% repletion by that Sunday time period, you know? And so it's little things like that, that I think the nuance of being in a higher level sports setting, it gets missed. And we just think of it from a, a bodybuilding or a fitness or, oh, your biceps don't get as big or, you know, whatever it is. But the reality is from a true performance standpoint and being able to repeat that performance and avoid injury. And hey, at some point, we'll even talk about the effects on the immune system, right? That's fairly relevant right now. But you look at all that, those all play a role. And I think that's where we've progressed to in terms of potential understanding. And it was really the impetus for what we wrote in this review. It's really the one I've been wanting to write because it took a little bit more pragmatic approach. And starts to understand that we can't just look at pre, mid, post, and even pre-sleep in isolation. They all fit together, right? Because if your glycogen is depleted, your pre-feeding is going to be even more important than somebody who's topped off. In that case, it may not matter as much. And if you're engaging in carb-restricted training, well, maybe you withhold carbohydrate at the end of that high-intensity session, but you still feed protein. There's still a nutrient intake that becomes important there. It's all about the selection and what you're trying to accomplish. And so it's learning, to your point, it's an excellent one. It's part of the toolbox, right? It's not the whole thing. It's not like just timing all of your nutrients is magically going to make you this elite athlete. But I'll tell you what, if you are at that level and you start to ignore it, it may be very detrimental, if nothing else, in terms of the ability to handle that. So I think those are important considerations in terms of how we look at it. And I would argue that that's really the approach that we took with this paper, you know, more than anything else. And I'm glad you you mentioned the toolbox, because that's a term that I like to raise frequently. And it's you know, as a practitioner, as a researcher, this knowledge, these strategies are very much those tools in the toolbox. But right. and I've talked about this before. When you look at expert practice, which is my, or effective practice, mm-hmm. which is my area of research interest, you understand that what differentiates sort of success from failure, or at least basic competence from mastery, is sort of two areas. 
One is actually understanding the strengths and limitations of that tool that you're even considering, i.e. do you really understand it, you know? And then that leads you into knowing when and when not to use that tool or that strategy. And of course, this is a great example of that because what is evidenced is vast numbers of people do not understand this tool that's called nutrient timing. And as a result of that, they misapply it. They don't know when and when not to use it. So that's why, you know, it's important that we read these reviews that you've put out, for example, and I like to do these podcasts. But I think what's interesting, in fact, the the podcast that will precede this one, which is mm-hmm. which is about to be published, so that's going to be really confusing to people if they <laughs> if they if they want to get into their time machine on this conversation. But Kevin Tipton and I are talking about muscle protein synthesis mm-hmm. and why that is actually a very misunderstood area. And folks, they've just got to listen to that because it integrates incredibly well with much of what you've just said, because. That misunderstanding in muscle protein synthesis, because of course the obsession behind this topic is what makes people bigger and faster and well, right. bigger and leaner and, and that sort mm-hmm. of thing, is factors like, well, how were those studies actually conducted? What are the methodological, how metho- methodologically robust was that study? You mentioned 2013, and that's just the meta. Those studies were, a lot of them were studied well before 2013. Correct. That's right. So not only has the evolution of knowledge in that time changed, so has Mm -hmm. technology generally. Our ability to actually understand what's happening within the muscle is all of great interest. But things like training status, you've mentioned, huge problem. And you wrote about this in your paper that there's a lot of attentions being given to this topic, but in untrained individuals. Yes, I mean, yeah. wow. You know, what's interesting, Laurent, what's interesting for us yeah. is we've been fairly fortunate, I believe, to work with the level of athletes that we've been able to research, right? It's not an easy thing to do. And it's also very difficult to do interventions in that piece, right? So some of it by default becomes observational. Some of it becomes monitoring throughout a time period. And it's funny because, you know, there's a lot of times where we run into issues with reviewers, like you didn't control this, you didn't control that. And it's like, yeah, but we have truly high level athletes. I mean, with the teams we've worked with, we have a number of players that go professional, you know, that have won titles, you know, all that. So, so we've been very lucky in that case. And it's hard because I think that some of these training studies in these recreationally trained athletes are useful to get at some mechanisms, but it's just different. Like, you know, when you put a real world, like a true high level, our level division one college athlete, you know, I'm in the SEC now, we were in the big 10 before. And, you know, for the listeners in, in the UK and otherwise that aren't familiar with us sports, consider it just a step down from like the premier league side of things. Right. So it's, it's sort of like the, the next level in terms of what we might be dealing with, with our athletes. But when you look at these recreationally trained athletes, they don't necessarily have the team dynamics they have to deal with, the travel schedules, the other demands that go along with the training itself, you know, two hours plus of training, all that, you know, so it's hard because it's hard to really truly capture what that means. And you're right. So then when we try to take something like a concept like nutrient timing or even protein timing, you know, if we're looking at the protein synthesis, especially on an acute basis, how does that translate chronically? Are we really even looking at the right thing, you know, and, and it really makes it challenging when you then try to extrapolate that to a population who, you know, literally trains year round. And in some cases, you know, I've heard people argue against periodization, for example, right? Okay. Maybe for just straight up lifting, but if you tell me it's a bad idea to periodize an athlete, 
when they have an in-season and off-season, all these other things to accomplish? Like, no, you're missing the boat. Like, we've got to make it clear at the very least what population we're talking about. And I think if we at least did a better job of that, there would be far less confusion because I don't think we hear a whole lot of this. It depends, right? That's, that's the favorite phrase of some people is like, it depends. And I agree it does, but then let's qualify it. It depends on what, right? So who are you working with? What's that level? What are you trying to do? You know? And I think that if we can make that clear, that would at least set the stage for a more reasonable discussion about how we apply this. At least that would be my take on it. And the more I've been around this, the more convinced I am that that's it. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like you said, like, do you even use the tool correctly? And the reality is if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? And so it's, it's being able to find that right tool, the, the proper fit for it. And yeah, understanding when to use it, but also realizing that some tools actually work really well together too, right? Mm-hmm. So it's an issue of being able to put multiple together at the right time to fit the needs of what you're trying to accomplish and really achieve peak performance if you're trying to do that. That's why for years I was obsessed with trying to lead the cause or help lead the cause for context. You know, that whole it depend thing. I was pretty obsessed with it. Anyone that's listened to this podcast going back a few years, they'll have heard me talk about context to the extent that even- I'm huge on context. I agree with you 100%. Craig Sale and I even did a whole podcast just about context. But I have evolved that term actually, where I feel if I had to nail it down to one word, it would actually be relevant. Is it relevant? And to segue that into what we're talking about, so you can see what I did there, Sean, is, is it relevant, is a useful term to, I think, look at this concept of nutrient timing. And I think that's, you talk about this in your review, and when you look at the literature about nutrient timing, even if you go back a bit, they do sort of infer, actually, that there are scenarios, and this comes back to your it depends statement, but this is pretty much the most important thing. This is not applicable to everyone, right? You're exactly right. You know, but here's the thing is, maybe it is applicable to everybody. The question is the degree to which it's applicable. And I think that's what really gets lost is it will be far more important for some groups and some people than it will be for others. But it doesn't mean there's no utility in it for everybody, as long as you're doing the other stuff too, right? So in other words, it's not exactly like it's the first thing I would start with from an educational standpoint. It's okay. So today, before you even understand carbs, proteins, and fats, we're going to talk about timing, right? Like we don't do that. But then when it comes down to, okay, so you got the basics, you're hitting your, your goals for your protein intake in a day, you got your training together. Okay, let's start playing with timing a little bit. Now let's start working on a few scenarios here. Now, you know, there's an interesting angle to this, which I think maybe people, they'll certainly recognize what I talk about. And maybe just by virtue, I I talked about science being very reductionist when it comes to research and so on. And we tend not to include the more qualitative things. So by this, I'm I'm going into this idea of habit and behavior modification. Now, particularly with athletes who can be very obsessive about Mm -hmm. things. One great thing about nutrient timing is it, yeah, you don't need to do it, but they want to do it. Sure. And the reason why they want to do it is because they perceive it to be a high level, a more advanced 
approach. And they want to do everything that they can to be the best that they can. So of course, it's like everything, isn't it? We like to upgrade features in our car. We like to, you know, we don't just go for the basic thing on the menu, or at least I never do. I want to go for, I'm going to upgrade the menu. Well, why would we go for some basic approach to our nutrition when we can go for the super duper shiny nutrient timing feature? And maybe that's also important, perhaps, is the is is the buy-in, the belief, the way in which that shapes our habits and behaviors, which after all underpins what we do with food and drink. It's something that we do through habits and behaviors, isn't it? What what would you think about that? Let me give you an even more practical example than that, right? So here's one that we have run across. I think there's often an assumption that high-level athletes automatically know about nutrition or care about it for that matter. And there are many that do not. And we found over the years that much of what we had to really start with was basic nutritional education. Some of these college athletes who are well-educated didn't even know the difference between a carb and a protein in some cases. They, they couldn't really identify what it was. They had heard of it, sure, but they didn't necessarily know how to shop for themselves or anything. So here's the other thing that, that hit for us, though. So we would make sure that our teams always had a post-training shake, right? Make sure it had 20 to 40 grams of protein, at least as much carbohydrate and this and that. And people are like, oh, but you know, they don't have to do it right away. It's like, no, but here's the deal. Most of these players are about to head off to class now. And if we don't take advantage of feeding them now, there is a good chance that they're not going to eat anything for the next three to four hours. So at least we know they're walking off the field having had something. And what happened was that started to become a behavior. So they started to associate, I work out, I eat, I train, I eat, right? And so we started to, to sort of, like you were saying with those behaviors and, and the notion that I'm doing something that's important, but it also creates a behavior. And in some cases, even with your average exerciser, right? They leave their personal trainer, they leave the gym, whatever it is. If we're starting to help them identify that I train, I eat protein. What's wrong with that? Like we're building a good behavior. They're starting to associate nutrients equal recovery, nutrients equal performance, right? So I think there's a real value in that, but we also don't want to go so overboard. There's like, oh, oh my God, I didn't eat right away. They're going all my gains, right? It's like, no, 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 you're okay. Like, let's just go and eat now. It's fine, right? But I think as long as we don't create that panic, you said like you're in the squat rack and you're like, oh my God, I forgot my shake, right? Like there goes everything. And I think we don't want to create that scenario where it's so overwhelmingly inundating that they're like, oh my God, like there goes everything, right? I, I totally ruined it. No, 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 no. But at the same time, just pay attention to it, right? So now it's front and center in their mind. And I think that for anybody that's in particular worked with female athletes, understand that helping them process the notion that calories are not these bad, evil little beings can be a real challenge sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the biggest breakthroughs we made, I'll never forget this. We had one of our players, she comes off the pitch, my doctoral student at the time, Bridget, now my postdoc, she's got the numbers up for GPS and heart rate. We're using the Polar Team Pro system. And the player comes over, looks over Bridget's shoulder and goes, whew, that's going to be a lot of food. Like she's processing, I need to replace that. And I was like, that was one of the best things that we've done, you know? And it was great because then they started to associate, they would look forward to the post game meals because they knew this was their chance to get ready for the next match. It was interesting taking this approach, again, putting it into usable terms for everybody. So before we left Rutgers, the last year we were there, our team, the women's team, set the NCAA record for most overtime matches in a season with 11. We didn't lose a single one of them. Why? 
because we had great players and great coaches first and foremost. And by the way, if you ever want to be a great sports scientist or sport nutritionist, work with great athletes. They really make you look like you know what you're doing. But the other part too is we really paid attention to fueling, right? Like we made sure that we were on that so that we weren't falling apart in the added time and stuff like that. So I think those are, you know, like I said, from a practical standpoint, if you have these athletes and they're about to leave your venue, leave your practice field, go on and do something else, What's wrong with making sure they eat before they leave? Because you don't know when they're going to eat again sometimes. So it's that notion, control the controllables, right? While you've got them in your care, take care of what you can, because then maybe it sets the stage for good habits going forward. Absolutely. You know, I think that is such an important point that you raise, which, you know, I reflect on my own work, particularly traveling around with teams, Mm -hmm. you know, things don't go to plan frequently or there are other things like meetings Mm -hmm. or you literally miss the bus or something happens so you also have to preemptively if it can go wrong it will type thought process but if you haven't done that well tough titties as they say because then you end up with a inappropriately fueled athlete who's going to have to compete anyway and they're going to lose because you didn't prepare for the inevitable you know it's like we had that thing which is the five p's or the six p's depending on whether you want the polite version or not but it's true preparation prevents performance right but you can add an extra p in there and that's from a practical perspective which is a practitioner as sport and exercise nutrition practitioner we are talking about practice and of course that means we need to be practical. And of course, you got a whole section about this in your review, but we're going to come back to that in a minute because I want people to get back to that idea of understanding what these tools in the toolbox are and the strengths and limitations of those. So of course, that means they need to understand a bit more about the science and also differentiate the quality science from the not so good science. Sure. And also, you know, it might be good science, just not relevant, which of course brings us back to that idea that, well, hang on, these studies were all done on untrained people. So it might be done with all the best researchers and best equipment. Absolutely. Not so relevant. So if we look at this body of knowledge then, just to give us an idea, because I know you talked about Ivy and Portman, but just bring us up to date a bit with what kind of studies are being done on these topics that, you know, just, I know you haven't got time to go through all the studies, but just give us an idea of how we come to know what we know at this point. What has fed into that? Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's funny too. We really couldn't go to like a singular study or something that's been a benchmark. I will honestly say that if nothing else... When you really look at the whole research area of true nutrient timing, it's a very difficult thing to manipulate because in some ways it's very hard to work with high level athletes if you're going to do that, because when are you going to manipulate it around what training sessions, what are the outcomes you're looking for? So we're often left with sort of trained individuals at best. And more often than not, it's sort of part of a training study. So, you know, and then the training itself will always be the bus driver, right? I mean, that's going to be the big mover in this case. And I think that, you know, when you start to look at some of the work that's been done with multiple carbohydrate transporters and what we're seeing in terms of the feeding capabilities with that, I think in some ways where we saw some real strides, it was kind of cool on the pre-feeding side, as well as the during, especially the during was the work that had gone into the whole Nike breaking two stuff, right? We're trying to break the two hour marathon because one of the big challenges, how do we get the human body to be able to handle more carbohydrate If that becomes a limiting fuel in this period of time, how do we get 80 grams plus past the GI system 
in order to do this. And so I think some of those polymers that have been developed and stuff, I think that's been a very unique approach going forward. I think even from the standpoint of what we're starting to see a bit more on the micronutrient side. So even if we're looking at timing of creatine intake, you know, and, and it maybe it doesn't matter a lot, but again, it matters a little. And I think the thing that's always struck me too, when we look at any of these studies, it is very, very important to keep in mind the magnitude of the effect within the population you're examining. So for example, general population recreationally trained, does a one to 2% improvement make a worthwhile difference? I would argue probably not. That's a drop in the bucket. Elite athlete, 1% improvement was the difference between the gold and the silver medal in the marathon in the last summer games. So 1% matters, right? And so again, it's that group you're working with and their room for improvement in certain things as well, I think really is something we have to pay attention to. And so there's a practicality that goes with this. I think it's important, even if you look at some of the protein synthesis work, you know, what kind of training program did they use? Was it even something that people would really do? You know, because often we'll use exercise as a tool within that study to create an effect, but is it even the training program that somebody would actually do? I would argue, you know, two lower body exercises is not a typical leg workout, right? But we'll use it to infer what the effects are with the leucine feeding and stuff like that. So I think that parsing through that is important. Then I think when you start to get to the, the sleep feeding and some of the stuff that I believe was Luke Van Loon and others, but then also that Mike Ormsby's done, I think those are important studies and contributions to our understanding of recovery. And even many of those have not necessarily been done in athletes. Some of those have been looking at weight loss and metabolic effects, but yet we do see this sort of anabolic stimulus overnight. And that's kind of an easy one to extrapolate to your athletes because then you kind of sit back and go, well, why wouldn't I? Right. Like in other words, what's the, and I think, you know, it's one of the things that, and I, I think the world of Joey Antonio, but one of his resonating comments is always like, if it helps or doesn't hurt, why wouldn't you do it? You know, and it's one of those things, especially with an athlete, if you have the ability to put a few things together and do that. So I think when you look at the depth of our understanding of the knowledge and really, I'll be honest, I really think that I would like to see more in the true nutrient timing area. We're gearing up to do this with a couple of military studies, because believe it or not, that might be the population where this is most, I wouldn't say easy, but most adaptable in terms of being able to manipulate that a little bit and not really worry about screwing up performance. But there are some things on the horizon for us to try to move in that direction. But it's not an easy thing to do because you get caught in this vicious cycle of, okay, well, if we, if we control for, for total calorie intake, but then when do we take away from them at other times of the day? And, and how do we, you know, and so the, a nutrient, a true nutrient timing study is not easy to do. I still think that for the most part, we still probably the sort of the benchmark nutrient timing study, in my opinion, is the crib and haze study. We still kind of fall back to that because it was actually pretty well designed. Like it really, that was not an easy thing to do to spread that feeding into other times. What gets really challenging when you're working with performers, right? And, and we do need them to eat. You know, it's funny when people say meal frequency doesn't matter, but yet at the same time, you know, 30 to 40 grams of protein per meal seems to maximize protein synthesis. And you're going, okay, do the math. Because if you have a hundred kilo athlete, you need them to probably eat five times a day in order to do this. And that's the other way, by the way, practically, I've always looked at nutrient timing is it's another opportunity to fit a feeding in that they're going to need to hit their total quota for the day. Because if you've got athletes that are training two, three, four, five hours a day, sometimes 
if you don't nutrient time, they're never getting enough calories in in the day. Like it's impossible to do. And so I think that when we look at it from that standpoint and where the science has come, there's some real promise. I think we certainly know more. And I think it's one of the reasons why we feel confident in what our interpretation of the literature is to this point. And it certainly superseded what we knew at the time of, of that meta-analysis in 2013 on just protein. That being said, there still haven't been many protein timing studies. And even with that, it might be a pre or a post feeding. You know, the one thing that hasn't been looked at a lot very much is what about both, right? So we, so in other words, I think what is, I don't want to say it's plagued this area because I think it has been an important mechanistic step, but we've often looked at it as an either or you either feed before or you feed after, oh, look, it didn't matter. My way I look at it, especially if I've got a two, two and a half hour training session or depending on if it's going to get a meal, I'm like, or you feed before and you feed after, right? Like, why does it have to be one or the other? And that's something that, and that I will give the crib and hay study. That is something I think they did a good job of is the pre and the post, you know, because that's often how it would work in practicality. And I think that's something we need to pay a little bit more attention to going forward from a study design standpoint is what that really looks like when we start to put it in a real world type of application for how feeding can occur and stop looking at it as an either or because so much of what we do from a training and a nutrition standpoint is additive. And I would argue in some cases, multiplicative in terms of potential benefits rather than trying to look at it piecemeal in terms of how we do this. And to some degree, that's sort of the trap we've fallen into with nutrient timing is that either or approach, not a both and approach. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that. what's exciting is there's still so much more for researchers to Absolutely. research. You know, as I was saying earlier, you know, it's like this previous podcast to this will have discussed the fact that people seem to think or people are led to believe that we know all there is to know about muscle protein synthesis. And that is not true. And again- Absolutely. This nutrient timing thing is, you know, it's new. I mean, sport and exercise nutrition is new when you- It is, all things considered, you're right. Other sciences. But what I really like about what you just said, going back a few minutes, is I guess nutrient timing has a use if you flip it the other way and go, rather than trying to use nutrient timing to construct your actual feedings, it's a way of you looking- at the fact that you're going to be feeding anyway, but it's going to at least help you understand what you should be prioritizing in those feedings. Because it does matter if you didn't eat a certain kind of food, right? So look, this could go on for hours, this. Of course, what I want people to do is read the reviews and papers. And I know you and Chad dedicated a book chapter to Mm -hmm. this topic as well in the the NSCA's Guide to Sport and Exercise Nutrition, which I also wrote a chapter for. I know you did. I saw that. Yeah, yeah doing my little bit there. But look, if we were to, we've got phrases like total type and timing, and a lot of the listeners will be familiar to that in terms of how we might want to have some sort of hierarchy of nutrition. And of course, we've got other terms like food first and, you know, all these sorts of things. And you made a big point of the fact that, you know, we're not just eating macros or calories, you know, or or protein, you know, there's other stuff in there. And that is- right important when we don't just think of this from a sports nutrition perspective we think about it as nutrition how do we nurture ourselves there's a lot we we need other things from food but if we go back to another term that you've used which people are familiar with in the nutrient timing literature is this concept of windows yeah and i guess there are sort of three main windows which would be 
There's a pre-exercise nutrition window. There's the during exercise and the post-exercise. I think just in the interest of, of time, and yes, people can read around this, and I will put all sorts of links in the show notes and even get them to listen to our previous podcast. And also with Luke Van Loon and Mike Ormsby, I've yep. interviewed all those guys. Fascinating conversations. But just so we can maybe just focus a bit on, from your perspective, knowing a fair bit about this topic and having been able to look at the evidence and filter that to you know a level of translation into what is going to help make some robust decision making of that information what would inform your practice as someone who would recommend pre during and post nutrition i know there's a lot of it depends and so sure. on but just to give an approximation so one thing i think one thing we have to keep in mind through all this is what we're trying to accomplish as the end result right we talk about performance, but what leads to performance? I would argue that the greatest ability of an athlete is availability, right? So if we can keep them healthy and functioning and on the pitch, they're going to contribute a lot more. And I would say that with the teams we've worked with that have had the greatest success, it was a function of keeping them healthy, reducing injuries, things like that, where they can play, they're not getting sick. And so we know that carbohydrate refeeding post-workout can actually help with the immune response. It helps reduce that viral window of susceptibility in terms of what we're seeing. So, so part of it is if we use that as sort of our guiding platform, that what we're really trying to do is facilitate recovery. And I would even argue with the work that James E. Morton and all those guys have done on the carb-restricted training and things like that, it's still about availability though, isn't it? So in other words, it's this notion of forcing an adaptation. But what I always found really interesting in that area was that the only studies that tended to actually produce a performance improvement were not the ones where they trained them in a fasted state, but they trained them in a protein-fed state. So they restricted carbs, protein fed, but I've seen coaches and practitioners take those lessons and they try to train them in carb restricted all the time. And in most of those studies, they only did it two, three days a week. It wasn't in every training session idea. The other thing too, is I would argue some of that and in your understanding of the population things are done in will dictate how you apply that to your sport. Because for example, being able to do a steady state training in a carb restricted state might work for a cyclist or a runner. Will it work for a soccer player? Will it work for a rugby player, an American football player where you have to cut and turn and sprint? Like we don't have that many steady state sessions with them, right? So if they're in a restricted state, are we potentially increasing the odds of an injury? Again, all the things we need to think about. It's how you take that tool and apply it. It may not fit your sport. It doesn't mean it's not a useful tool, just maybe not for you. I think that's such an important and powerful statement that we should hang on is availability because it's not about how can we overfuel the body. We right. haven't got problems with overfueling. There's loads of people that, you know, that's- I don't know, most of the world technically does. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, most of the world is overfueling. But yeah. it is this all or nothing approach. And you're absolutely right. Someone goes, right, oh, I've read about fasted training, so I'm just going to do that all day long. No. And I think the availability, because of course, this is something that's becoming better and better understood. I've done quite a few podcasts over the years, and particularly recently on topics like relative energy deficiency mm -hmm. in sport, even concepts like the male athlete triad that's now been coming out. And of course, with the well, particularly during this pandemic, I suspect that the numbers of people that are getting into endurance sports, you know, sort of solo ultras, 
it is exploding. I personally have worked with a lot of ultra endurance athletes and you're absolutely right. You can't eat enough. You work with a triathlete like an Ironman, for example, their problem is not overfeeding. Their problem is, you know, where can I get enough food? And I think that again, like you say, is actually where this nutrient timing as a tool and understanding where the timing of these nutrients becomes important if you frame it from the perspective of ensuring availability. Because obviously, and it's a bit of a duh statement, but if it's not available, it's not there. And if it's not there, you're not going to perform. And of course, that leads us into the area that you mentioned, which was something that I've been concerned with for some time. And it's the fact that these manipulations that result in lack of sufficient availability and the impact that that can have on the immune system is of particular interest, which I've covered with numerous people over the years from Professor Neil Walsh, Mike yeah. Keaton, even, and Richard Simpson, a Scotsman, but over your side of the, <laughs> the world, is immensely interesting. So sorry, I, I know that I took us off course. No, but- no, but you didn't. You're exactly right. Because my background is endocrinology and, and we do a lot of biomarker work, right? And I think one of the really telling tales for us with some of the stuff we've been doing over the last, especially five, six years is looking at these these modifiers throughout a competitive season and realizing how much perturbation occurs to the human system that we couldn't just account for with training load, right? Like welcome to life and competition and travel. And I think when we're looking at at sort of inflammatory cascades, when we're looking at markers of immune function and the recovery aspects that go with it, you know, being able to keep somebody healthy is underrated, in my opinion, because we're looking for the bigger pecs, the bigger biceps, the the faster 40 time. But at the same time, they got to be able to play. Right. And so we got to be able to keep them, you know, ready to go. And I think that really coming back to what your original question had been to me in terms of, you know, how do these windows matter and and where might it matter? You know, I think by and large, some of it's going to depend a little bit on the time of day. Right. So I think one of the things I thought was really cool is the work that had just come out. Was it last year showing that skipping breakfast, even if you made up the calories later in the day, negatively impacted performance later in the day. And I think that's an important thing to realize. And it, you know, I think people also have to realize that if you're not a big breakfast food fan, breakfast can be whatever you want. It doesn't have to be high carb, whatever. But, but I think that if you've got players that are going to train early in a day, you've got to find a way that pre-feeding in the morning is going to be important for their training session because they will have fasted for so long. If their training session is a little later in the day, you may have a little more flexibility. Maybe that one hour pre-training doesn't become quite as important because they've eaten a couple times leading up to that, right? So I think, again, that context that goes into, well, what have you done to this point, right? So I think for pre-feeding, some of it is going to be dependent on, on the when, right? So like, when are you training? During training, I think really starts to matter as well when you start to look at how long is the session. If it's a 60-minute weight training session or or something like that, it's not going to make that big of a difference. If you ate before and you eat after, that's pretty much what you're going to do. You're fine, right? But on the other hand, if it's like a two-hour session and you're doing some high-intensity work in there as well, yeah, then some sort of refeeding somewhere in there. We know this from the work with soccer and halftime feedings. When it starts to go to 90-plus minutes, then yeah, you know what? That total time starts to play an impact because of energy expenditure. And then post, really, there's no good reason not to feed after, regardless of what it is. So in other words, if you're going to engage in carb-restricted training the next morning, then maybe you don't feed a lot of carbohydrates. Still feed protein, for God's sake. There's no reason not to, 
But on the other hand, if you're now trying to recover for another game, like let's say, for example, if you take like a tennis tournament or something like that, and they've got you know matches in, in back-to-back types of days or just a couple days apart, then what you do to refuel after that last match really starts to matter, right? Because how ready are you to go the next time? And the other thing too is people forget it takes women longer to carb replenish, glycogen replenish than it does men in most cases. So that would suggest that for a female athlete, especially where we might be worried about ACL injuries and other factors and stuff like that, like feeding becomes really, really critical. You know, and I always laugh when, when we sort of argue that like nutrient timing doesn't matter. And then you look at something like, hey, by the way, if you want full iron absorption, make sure you take it with vitamin C, right? Hey, guess what? That's actually called nutrient timing too. You're taking two things at the same time, timing, in order to make sure that they're absorbed correctly, right? And so, and I think too, one of the things that I've seen is we know that carbs don't necessarily help with protein synthesis, Right. But protein can help with glycogen resynthesis, especially if you're under about that 1.2 grams per kilogram of carbohydrate per hour. And I'll tell you what, for a lot of athletes, like much above that 1.2 grams per kilo per hour is a lot of freaking food. And so to tell you the truth, we err on the side of going ahead and include protein with that then, because maybe they don't have to take in quite as much carbohydrate they tolerate it better. Plus, depending on the athlete you're working with, and we've seen this maybe a little more with female than male athletes, but it's not exclusive. They look at the back of that label that's on whatever you're giving them and they go, wait, how many calories and carbohydrates? Like there's a reluctance there. And so sometimes you're going, okay, what can I get in you that you will do? Right. And so we try to find these things that work together, like the carbon protein intake together that create as good a scenario as I can possibly create. We never strive to be perfect with this, right? What? <laughs> yeah, I know. Exactly. <laughs> People do, right? And, and in some ways, yeah, if you strive for perfection, perhaps you catch excellence along the way. And that's great. But I think the reality is the best approach to this is the one they'll actually do, you know? And so we have to be reasonable with this, but at the same time, set the bar high, try to do all you can And then where you figure out there are the biggest sticking points, modify those, you know, but I I think, you know, the the research really supports the approach for that. It doesn't have to be complex to be good, right? It doesn't have to be complicated. I think maybe that's where we've gone wrong in nutrient timing. Sometimes we, we complicate the crap out of it. And sometimes it's like, Hey, do me a favor, eat some carbon protein before you work out, eat some carbon protein after you work out and then do me a favor, eat some protein in particular before you go to bed. Can you do that? Great. We're partway there. It's odd, isn't it? You think if there's one thing, like if I asked my, you know, my six-year-old son for him to describe how complicated he felt nutrition was after giving him some basics, he'd be like, well, dad, we eat breakfast, (laughs) we eat lunch, we eat supper, we eat snacks. I mean, we eat, you know, how could it be more complicated than that? You might miss a meal, you might have one another time, but surely it's not that complicated. It isn't actually that complicated, but we do overcomplicate matters to the extent that, as we know, you can be doing your bachelor's, your master's, your PhDs on this topic, and you're only barely scratching the surface of how big a topic we've made this. I mean, do you think yes. that's actually even part of the problem here? Maybe we're responsible for this, Sean, you, me, and some yeah. of the others. <laughs> yeah, we probably are. You know, I think the other thing too, that's complicated a bit is 
I don't know, maybe trying to make it bigger than it is, right? So in other words, a perfect example is, and again, not to harp on the meta because I think it's a useful finding, but it's the way it's been applied in certain settings is, you know, in this effort to sort of debunk or examine nutrient timing, there was one nutrient and all of a sudden it changed the complexity of the field Mm. because of the way people jumped on that. And again, not that it's not a useful finding. I think it told us a lot, which is if you're untrained, then your total protein intake in a day is more important than how you take it in. Okay, great. At least we know to target some. But unfortunately, how that was then moved into the athletic realm and the active individual space became difficult. You know, if you really want to have a fun one, go back and look at the meta that was done on meal frequency, where they basically found that meal frequency didn't matter after taking out the outlier, because at one point it did. You know what the outlier was? It was a study where they also exercised with it, in which case meal frequency mattered. Right. So now are we oversimplifying the meal frequency thing because of what we choose to remove as outliers when in fact that outlier is a very important finding when it comes to meal frequency and training. So, you know, again, I think it all comes down to making sure you understand what population you're talking about that was used in that study and how it applies. And it may never be that that population is exactly identical to who you're working with or what you want, but how close is it? And what are the similarities that allow you to derive some conclusions that mean anything in order to do this and putting it into practice in a, in a relatively simple but meaningful way. You know, and I think that's probably the approach that I would recommend as we look at this literature and we look at the area and complexity versus simplicity is go for the most bang for your buck, right? Do the stuff that matters the most first, get that down, then you can start playing with the other stuff, right? I mean, it's yeah. because like I said, if you have an athlete who's not sleeping and they're not eating enough, and they're not training well, well, I can nutrient time all freaking day and it's not going to make a difference, right? It's not going to solve my problems. So I got to take care of the big stuff first. But then after that, now something like how you time that does start to become a useful addition because it's the next level that you're taking that to. And ideally, yes, especially if you're working with a high level athlete, which I know you've done quite a bit. No, by the way, it was funny. You know, you'd said how you have this interest on the military side as well. And I know the work you've done there, SUSOPS, sustained operations, right? You talk about availability, right? And your ability to reproduce that at an effort over multiple days or a week or more on a sustained operation on a SUSOP. Like, yeah, availability, man, it matters, Right. And in this case, it might bring somebody home or not. So those are the kinds of things that we need to start thinking about when we interpret this area. And as we look for the next level of study and what questions still need to be answered, we actually have a lot of answers out there. I really do believe that we have some really good research out there that has shown the value of feeding, the value of feeding at certain times and in quantities, but also being able to put that within the description of, okay, Were they coming in carb depleted or glycogen depleted or were they not? Did the activity they engaged in deplete glycogen cause significant muscle damage or not? Post training then, what are we looking to do and when's my next training session in order to know what I need to do to get ready for that? Do I have a little bit more leeway? Do I have a little bit less? Where am I starting at? Oh, and by the way, here's another one. Are they coming off of injury? In which case, maybe this matters even more because I'm trying to get every little bit out of recovery that I possibly can. If you start to put those pieces of the story together, now you're starting to frame it in a way that we actually have the research to support it. 
and you are applying it to who you're working with. But again, pay attention to the big movers first. Yeah. You know, I think, I mean, an elephant in the room on this is going to be the issue of should you get into this? Should you run with it? Or should you sit there and go, do you know what? I I actually, in all honesty, can't say I really understand this. And that's difficult because people have written about this in our industry. So like Louise Burke, Professor Louise Burke wrote about scienciness and or truthiness, I think was Stephen Colbert's thing, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Is how what sparked this whole thing off. But people aren't necessarily just ignorant of of their lack of knowledge in this area, they can be ignorant of their ignorance. And that's an issue where a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. And that's like you say, these metas come out and suddenly everybody in the personal training or strength conditioning industry, you know, go running with that world, blah, blah, blah. He's an influencer or, you know, he's a well-known researcher. He's got X amount of publications or whatever, you know, and I don't want to light fires or do whatever because all this stuff's valuable knowledge. The problem comes to- It absolutely is. To interpretation and- and so on. But, you know, as a practitioner or a, or a researcher, you need at least a certain amount of skills in order to filter this stuff, just from your perspective, because obviously not everyone can do a PhD. But from your perspective, given, you know, the, the, the troop on the ground, how are they supposed to confront this? Because otherwise, it's overwhelming. What's your advice on that, Sean? Common sense goes a long way. Unfortunately, common sense isn't that common, right? And so I think that sometimes you need to take a step back and really ask what you're trying to accomplish with your athletes. But I think what you need to do probably first and foremost is ask yourself how well you know your athletes, right? So I'll give you an example. This is something that actually Michelle had run into when she was working with Rutgers women's soccer. We had a player, she was educating them on protein intake and the player's like, oh yeah, no, no, I eat plenty of protein. So she does a dialogue and it's like almost no protein. Well, okay, well let's identify sources of protein. So player comes in the next week and she goes, you're going to be so proud of me. I got protein in. She goes, I had fried shrimp, right? I remember Michelle sat there for a second. She goes, that is fantastic, right? Because it's one of those things where there, I know a lot of dietitians like, oh, you don't want to eat fried food and fried foods, you know, not going to help your athletic performance. The point is we were trying to help her understand protein and that she wasn't getting any. It was a win for her. You don't crap on that. You don't basically say no, because you know what? They will give up at that point. Like, well, and I don't know what I'm doing. So even little progress is still progress. And so I think as a practitioner, as uh, in, in the nutrition world, in the performance world, whatever it is, and they're not mutually exclusive, obviously, know your athlete and know what a win would be. Where are their biggest struggles and where can you make the biggest difference for them? Because at the end of the day, if they're just not eating enough, period, you can actually use nutrient timing to your advantage because it gives you some places where you can say, I need you to eat here and I need you to eat here because it's going to help your performance and your recovery. And oh, by the way, you just fit two more meals in them, right? So you can use it to your advantage without having to get complicated. And I probably would get less caught up, especially initially, at least initially in total quantities. Like you don't have to get your grams per kilogram just dead on and stuff. Just try to feed them, like make sure that they're getting in a carbohydrate they can use before their game, right? And, you know, an hour to two hours out, maybe top them off as they get closer post, make sure they're getting protein in them to start the repair process. But if you know, you got some more stuff coming up, feed them some carbohydrate too, because it's going to help with their immune recovery on top of everything else. So it's one of those things where we don't have to get super fancy and we don't have to worry about every little micronutrient here and there. Start Start with the basics. 
as you get good at that, now we can tweak it a little bit and start adding in those little extras. They're like, okay, cool. We've nailed this. Now here's what I want you to do, right? But until they nail that, for the love of God, don't add the next layer. You're going to frustrate them and you're going to frustrate yourself. You know, and the one thing that we took away doing this and with the other stuff that I've written on Nutrient Timing, the review we did for ISSN is within these windows, you actually have some flexibility in what you do. It's not like it's this lockstep. If you don't do this, you massively fail, right? I think one of the coolest findings for me was that we often think of caffeine as as sort of the pre-training, pre-workout type of stimulant, but we've also seen that it can help with glycogen replenishment if you take it after, right? Like how cool is that from a timing standpoint? So those are the little things that I think that we can do a better job with that even if you don't have a full understanding of the area, as long as you grasp what the crucial times are for your athlete or your performer or whoever it is, and you understand the value of food, right? Whether it's in supplement form, whole food form, and you understand, especially around that training aspect, that's a little less fat, a lot more carbon protein oriented, fit the other stuff in throughout the day. But I would argue, don't lose the forest for the trees where just in your efforts to be so focused on the timing aspect that you forget about educating about the entire day, because ultimately that's going to carry the bulk of the work for you. I would just argue the timing piece gives you a little help to fit the whole day stuff together, right? Where it's like, okay, hey, at least I know if I'm taking care of this part, I'm halfway there, right? We've, we've covered at least two of like four or five meals, like we're getting there. And, and I think that's where you can really see some utility in that and knowing how many times a day your athletes have to train and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, even beyond, you know, elite athletes, I mean, honestly, even with kids, when you see some of their soccer tournaments in a weekend and they have like two and three games, like back to back to back to back, feed the little buggers, right? Like they need to eat, like they need to refuel too. And so in our efforts to demystify and demythify, I think sometimes we've tried too hard to show that things aren't necessary, but it's not that it's less about nutrient timing being necessary. And it's more about it being a valuable commodity and tool to make the most out of something, you know, and this is where I am a big, big advocate for optimal versus sufficient. There's a lot of things you can do that are sufficient, but it doesn't mean it's optimal, you know? And I would argue that as we go forward and we think about how that fits, you know, we, as an example, we hear a lot about minimal effective dose, right? Like minimal effective dose. Well, for anybody that works with a high level athlete, you know, that minimal effective dose is not going to get you that far, right? If you just do the minimum to make some progress, but I would also argue on the flip side, minimal effective dose becomes a lot more useful to understand if you also know maximal tolerable dose, right? So if you know the extremes, now you find your sweet spot for training. Same thing goes with nutrition. Find out what your minimums are in terms of what they're currently doing and then work towards your maximums in terms of what you can ask them to do, but don't expect it to happen overnight. Thank you so much. This has been a really enjoyable conversation. I always... It just blows me away how we can talk for like an hour and a half about these sorts of things. You and I usually do have a good time, especially when we're in person. It's probably good that this is oh, by, uh, man, by so Zoom. Good. Otherwise, we'd be talking for four hours. It's been years since we had a drink together, Sean. Yeah. I, we I, did, yeah as soon as all this craziness oh, is done, we're going to work on we'll that. Oh, man, we'll get back to that. Yeah. We'll get back to 
alcohol timing. That's a, that's, that's, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's a whole other show. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. So listen, I hope that the listeners have got as much out of that as I did. I, you know, there's a, there's a lot of thought provoking stuff there. Obviously folks need to actually read the reviews, read yeah. the book chapters, get up to date with where we're at with the evidence. And, you know, your perspective is important there rather than just reading blogs on the internet and so on. So I'll put links to that in the show notes. All these new episodes all have transcripts so people can even read, awesome. read, read up on that. Yeah. And although I'll put the links for people who do want to follow you, what, what you know, your Twitter or, or ResearchGate or website, what, what are the ones you would recommend? So I'm pretty active on Twitter on the professional side. So whether it's Twitter or Instagram, it's at Sean Art. So fairly easy to find. It didn't make it that complicated. And then certainly with ResearchGate and stuff like that, follow along. We try to make sure that that's as updated as possible. And also feel free to reach out to me. You know, I will say, especially with the garage door paper, with the nutrient timing stuff. First of all, I thoroughly enjoyed writing it because, you know, Michelle and I were able to co-author it. So it's always kind of cool to get it right with your wife. And she has a pretty extensive background as a pro athlete. And she's actually working on her RD right now, which I think is really cool. But anyway, that was really a sweet spot for me. But this is really the paper I've wanted to write for a while that I presented on. But we tried to make it, you know, pun intended, digestible, right? So in other words, it's readable for people. Certainly the science is in there and we have some specifics for people to be able to follow. But even if if that's a challenge for you at times, we we tried to provide the take-home messages and the conclusions within each section to help people be able to understand where the value in this is. It's something that I feel passionate about that that we found has great utility in who we've worked with, uh, as well as the research we've done. We're actually in the middle of analyzing some data right now that we have on protein versus carbohydrate post-feeding in female athletes and what its effects were on biomarker responses. So we're looking at even from a, a timing standpoint with the macronutrient type, you know, does it matter based on males versus females? And so those are some of the things that we have in the pipeline, but by all means, feel free to engage. Your listeners know this because they obviously know the value of your podcast, but I think that what you do for our field is a, is a great service. I, I love what you guys do and interacting with you over the years. It's been great to see this grow. It's always an absolute honor for me to be on this. It's fun to just get to talk a little bit about the science and the practice all in one in terms of how we do this stuff. Because, you know, at the end of the day, I think the one thing I try to emphasize with my own doctoral students and postdocs is so what, right? So we do this research, but so what, you know, how does it get applied and and what are we helping in this? And it's not that everything is directly applicable, but what is the take-home message that you're trying to do. And that guides a lot of what we do in our work. You know, we're fortunate to be in an environment that very much values that and encourages us to do it. So, you know, again, you know, thank you to you and the Institute and and what you guys are doing. And obviously bringing Kevin Tipton on board is huge. Just think the world of that guy. And you guys just continue to grow and it's fantastic to see. And from my time as ISSN president through all of this now, it's been a big part of my life. So, So thank you guys for that. Oh, well, that, that's, that's humbling to hear. Thank you. I can't wait to have another chat with you on or offline, Sean. It's always awesome. Appreciate your time. And I, of course, am Lauren Banneker. Look forward to bringing you guys another episode very soon. Take care, everyone.